welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ed Greer. And I'm producer Bill. And today we're going to talk about greatest cinematic experiences. And, you know, we're going to talk about the movies most likely to produce some great cinematic effect. And you kind of come up with this by thinking about uh, Barbenheimer, right? Yeah, I think we are living through a summer where sort of the uh, fate of the movie going experience has been called into question. But Mm. at the same time, you've got stories of people like making cross-country trips to see Oppenheimer in the format that Christopher Nolan thinks you should see it in. So (laughs) that just really got me thinking. And I've actually had some really good – I have not seen Oppenheimer yet, full disclosure, but I have seen Barbie. And between that and some of the things that came out earlier this summer, like I've had some really good theater-going experiences – and I even think in the midst of the the SAG and the WGA strikes, you know, the idea that like making something to be seen in a theater still matters, I think is just such a salient topic right now. Yeah, I don't even want us to necessarily talk about our greatest cinematic experiences, but even, you know, movies that we've seen that we wish we could have seen in theaters. You know, it's it's just that idea. There's there's a real delineation between like an all-time great movie and an all-time great cinematic experience, and I would really like us to to drill down on that. I think Ron brought it up one time, so I'll be him in this situation and tell my story of seeing Rumble in the Bronx at okay. a movie theater. Like it isn't just mine; it's so it's shared by so many people. People who I, they brought Rumble in the Bronx sometime in the '90s, and they threw it up on a few screens, a smattering of New Line screenings, and just kind of left it lay. And boy, did everybody go see that damn thing. You know, it's like everybody was at that one game where Shoeless Joe hit the ball over the blah, blah, blah. Somehow everybody saw Rumble in the Bronx that summer. But I Mm. saw it and it was like it was like watching a feeding frenzy. But we were what we were feeding on was high stakes martial arts action, you know, and it wasn't even some of the stuff where he was about to die, like uh, Project uh Project A or or weird stuff where he's on fire the whole time, or like a police or stuff like police story. Even it was Rumble right. in the Bronx where he kind of had his process down, and they're filming in Canada, and you know there probably some safety guys on the, but he's still jumping across whole alleyways from like you know doing the the Batman stuff that you know for real. He's still right. kicking fifteen dudes' asses. It had to be much akin to people watching Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton or something like that. And, you know, the, mm. the parallels are obviously there. But it's like we're all invested in the central character that's basically nothing, a cipher. And then this character that is us, because he's so he's so charming, we want to believe that we're Jackie Chan. So we're watching our most charming self almost get hit in the head with a bat for 15 minutes at a time. And he's barely right. getting out of it. He's di- diving through a grocery cart. All this stuff. And then when he gets defeated a couple times in the movie where like he gets trapped in an alley and they hit him with a bunch of bottles and it's like all the Kung Fu in the world doesn't deal with 50 guys throwing bottles at you. And it's just like, it was just such a perfect, again, movie, that movie is not good unless you're looking at the action scenes. But as a cinematic experience, I think that's my closest recollection of exactly what you're talking about. And maybe as a little baby kid being in Die Hard and watching people clap at a movie like the people are there. It's rare that people get that swept up, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think Rumble in the Bronx has a couple really important points about it that make it so great. You know, one of them that you already obviously touched upon was the idea of practical stunts, which Mm -hmm. Jackie Chan really perfected. And and Mm -hmm. 
kicked up a notch, which I think is the other thing that that movie had going for it. You know, not only are you watching sort of the visceral thrill of somebody doing practical stunts, but it's also on a level that you've never seen before, mm-hmm. you know, in your sphere of movie going. And so when you put those two things together, you get a true cinematic experience. And I mean, I think the obvious parallel there, going back into the past with Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin makes sense. But modern day, you know, that's the Mission Impossible formula. And I think Mm -hmm. our boy Tom Cruise has very smartly keyed onto that. Like, if I can do this shit for real, and if I can do it on a level that you can't even come up with in your own mind, that is going to put butts in seats. And like, look, Mm -hmm. that formula goes all the way back to Jackie Chan and freaking Buster Keaton before him. As a secret mission of my own, I snuck away from my girlfriend to go see Mission Impossible uh, Mm -hmm. 7, Dead Reckoning Part 1. And... I got to say, I'm sitting in the theater by myself. I'm not watching it in IMAX, which is maybe what Christopher McQuarrie may have wanted. And I'm just looking at it, and it was really great. I loved it as far as, like, the set pieces and stuff. All the plot scenes really started to wear on me. Like, you know, the, everybody's just sort of like, everybody knows that the rabbit's foot has get, got to be put into the transmogrifier, blah, blah, blah. Well, if the entity gets the flick, well, we better stop. You know, there's like a lot of that, you know, and it's there just like a lot of that. Yes, there's just like a lot of that. So that can wear on you a little bit. But boy, when he gets on a motorbike and and has to get to the highest peak and you know what he's gonna do because you saw it in the trailers but you're like waiting to see him do it do it and see that unbroken shot and be like oh my god he really did it this is so (laughs) awesome i love this you know and it it really hits you on all those visceral levels and i gotta say they fucked it on the uh releasing I don't know why they decided to wade into this this hatchet battle between, you know, Oppenheimer and Barbie and all this other bullshit. They should have just waited this out and swooped in and stabbed the survivors. What are we talking about, right? Yeah, I don't know, man. I think that they they also could have released it earlier in the summer because I felt like and maybe they were just afraid of the whole fast X of it all, which didn't turn out to be much of anything. Right. <laughs> Like, I mean, Mission yeah, Impossible they, getting out of the way of anybody pisses me off, kind of. And then they I, don't get out of the way of the people who can actually beat them up. Like, what the fuck? No. <laughs> yeah, I agree, man. I, I don't quite get that. And I think it brings up another interesting point where, like, the, the Fast and the Furious franchise kind of bills itself as one of these, like, modern cinematic experiences. Like, come out and see it in the theater because it's high-octane, revved-up crazy shit. And I got to tell you, like... I have seen most of them in the theaters and I haven't been excited for one of those movies since fast five, that, that chase scene where they were dragging the vault, which Mm -hmm. by the way, done largely practically on the real streets of Brazil. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Amazing. Mm -hmm. And the chase scene down the favelas, which again, done largely practically in the actual favelas of Rio, like, that stuff grabs you and it hits. But it's like when we're watching cars swing like they're on the bat rope or when we're watching cars Uh jump between skyscrapers and it's just noisy, clunky CG, you know, it doesn't doesn't hit. It doesn't have that same like, oh my God, I am here witnessing this thing. Because of the fact that everybody isn't a psycho like Tom Cruise 
And because of the fact that most stunt crews aren't the 8711 dudes, watch some nerd pull up. The actually 8711 worked on all the fast movies. I don't think <laughs> yeah, right, that right. it doesn't fucking look like that. <laughs> so I'm sure. just going to assume that they did it. And what I'm saying is this propensity to shoot, do, do a lot of stuff in camera, do a lot of uh, uh, far away choreography so we can see the, you know, all the stuff that Jackie Chan and some of those guys do and some of the things that Tom Cruise tries to emulate. The guys that are involved with fast just don't do that. They kind of can't do that. And it just ruins the 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 whole point of you going to see Mission Impossible is, like you said, it seems like he's actually doing it. It seems like this is as dangerous as I'll ever let a movie star do. I never feel like uh, Vin Diesel or any of those dudes are in danger in those Fast sure. X movies. They're not in – they're never – they jump – they jump car to car at 90 miles an hour and just meet each other in the air and have a little kiss and land on the ground just fine. I mean, there's physics don't count. And I know it's stupid to argue physics with those movies, but in Mission Impossible, you could argue, save for a couple times when he would have got slammed too hard, you know, his uh, ribs would have turned to jelly if he fell from this height. Shit like that, you know, these extended fights where anybody would be knocked out 10 times. Forgiving some of those, Mission Impossible tries to do a little bit of, of physics, even from, from uh, besides maybe two besides maybe two. I think a lot of them really obeyed certain laws of physics and tried to make things thrilling on that level. Well, and you were dismissive of the idea of like, Oh, we're going to talk about physics, but I actually think that's like a hugely important part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And you can apply that even to something like the MCU where like, if you look at that original iron man, they take such great pains Despite the fact that the Iron Man suit is essentially magic, they take really great pains to make you understand at least how it theoretically works. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? The scene with him trying to stabilize himself with the hand boosters, the fact that it feels heavy and like thuds to the ground when he turns Mm -hmm. off the boosters, the fact that like he has to learn how to control the exoskeleton because otherwise it's going to torque in weird directions. Like all of that is really important to communicating to the audience, the sense of danger, that visceral thrill of I said it before, but I think it goes back to that feeling of I'm sitting in the theater and I'm not watching something. I'm witnessing something. Mm, Right. And part of achieving that spectacle is convincing me 100% of the reality of what's on screen. If you compare the physics of that original Iron Man with the physics of, say, Namor, who I loved, and a lot of what a lot of it was really good, but of him like just slicing through airplanes in the in the air as if like he's a bullet fired out of a gun and their tissue paper. You know what I mean? Like that Mm -hmm. to me, those were some of the most boring scenes in that Black Panther movie because it's just like, well, now I'm not, what am I watching? You know what I mean? I I, I think physics becomes a very important part of the conversation, both like actually and sort of metaphorically. Oh, yeah. I was just meaning like uh, applying physics to the freaking uh, fast movies. It's just they they decided those didn't matter so long ago. So many other movies where people get beat up, beat to jelly, totally unrealistic. They still do try to work physics in like even the John Wick's movie, John Wick movies Mm. for a time. They really were concerned with the physics of all the slamming and bamming and how do you get leverage on a guy and what kind of moves would this guy do in close proximity? How, How what kind of moves can Keanu do? 
in close proximity, but we in, uh, let us get a wide enough shot to see him do several of them in a row to sell the versatility of this world. All of that stuff, that's physics too. You know what I'm saying? Because he's not running off of walls. He's not kicking dudes 57 feet and they're getting yanked. You know what I'm saying? That stuff really messes up my um, appreciation of martial arts and fighting and choreography and to a certain extent stunt work when everybody's getting kicked 27 feet everybody seems to be you know a power lifter in regards to their physical abilities even the ladies it's like come on man i'll watch somebody get a couple combos and then wrestle on a desk before i'll watch that other bullshit you mentioned camera work and like the shots that they choose especially when portraying fight scenes martial arts action i think that's really a trademark of the jackie chan movies especially something like rumble in the bronx part of appreciating again that it's real, that he's doing it, that the, the sheer technical skill of doing it is that camera work. And it makes me think, you talked about how in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, a lot of those um, exposition scenes start to feel very laborious. I would argue it's not just because of what they're saying in those scenes, but it's also because of the way those scenes are shot. And this is no knock on mm-hmm. Chris McQuarrie as a director, but it's like you really get the fact they're putting the lion's share of their time and effort into those big action scenes. And when it's time for everybody to sit down and recite the plot, it might as well be shot like a TV show. It's just single face coverage, single face coverage. Maybe we get a spinning camera to go from this guy's face to this guy's face. But you Mm -hmm. compare that to something like Jurassic Park, right? Which Mm. is an obvious choice, but also... The fact that Spielberg will sell you on moments of stillness, like when Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler first see the dinosaurs, and it's not just hold on a close-up, hold on a wide shot. Wow, dinosaurs. I mean, there is a slow push-in with a tilt up, and Alan Grant looks, and then we pan over to Ellie, and he turns her head, and as she rises, we rise with her. And then as we see the dinosaurs for the first time, that camera comes in low as they're stumbling towards it and rises up right above their heads. And we're seeing what they're seeing. And there's the brontosaurus. And it's like the way I just described it is about as much time as it takes on screen. And obviously that's a big moment, but it's also kind of a moment of exposition. And this is also why I would say most of what Spielberg does tend to fit the bill of cinematic experiences Because that dude blocks and shoots a movie like a movie. And Mm. if there's one thing that I think modern blockbusters suffer from, um, and not Barbie, by the way, and I'm hoping not Oppenheimer, but a lot of modern blockbusters suffer from that sort of TV shorthand. All right, Mm -hmm. we're going to have a conversation. Set the camera up looking this way. Set the camera up looking this way. Have the actors stand still and give us their most intense faces. And it's like, that's not cinematic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think also this whole, the camera as a, um, as a person, mm. it, the camera definitely has personality in Jackie Chan movies. The camera definitely has uh personality in uh, Spielberg movies. Same with Scorsese movies. Um, mm-hmm. I would, I would tend to think that as far as a cinematic experience, I think when you look at smaller movies, less pyrotechnics, just more about the acting and the performance, I think every time I've seen a Scorsese movie in the cinema, mm-hmm. it's been so huge. And I think it's one of the things that gets Tarantino over because no matter what you think of him or his weirdly right 
sliding politics and his bullshit antics of before and whatever you think about his treatment of Uma Thurman and blah, blah, blah. He's a Titanic director, one of the like three directors anybody would just go see based upon the strength of the director. That's what he is. Fact. And that fact, ah, sometimes, man, these last couple of movies, he's just throwing up a bunch of bullshit I don't really like. But it's so big. It's yep. so big. And he uses the tools of cinema. When he's doing shit I don't even like, he is shooting that shit like, all right, dude, we got to got to get all three of these guys and it's when the power shifts in the scene we just tilt it right over like this here and it's just it's beautiful stuff even in movies that i do not like and that's to me cinematic cinematic experience it's the camera grabbing you and going hey we're going to look at this at this point because this is why we have to see it in this way trust me and that's why we talk about the trust of filmmaking blah blah 100 percent I think I'm going to be a film nerd here and recommend a movie as a cinematic experience from before the days of television. And again, this is not a controversial choice, but I'm going to speak from personal experience. Lawrence of Arabia mm -hmm. in 70 millimeter in a theater is a mind blowing experience. And yes, that is a long movie with some real dips. And at certain points, it gets very melodramatic. Anyway, it's an old movie. That said, the fact that they took cameras out into the middle of the Jordan of the desert in Jordan and took the time to lay dolly track and bring out their huge telephoto lenses and just live in that environment with the camera. And it's mm -hmm. never as simple as like one guy here, shoot him in a medium shot. The other guy looking at him, shoot him in a medium shot. The fact that they block the actors, people are moving in the frame. They go from small to big just because they move in the frame, not because you just cut to a close-up. It's not like watching anything else. And I think it does fit that bill of like, it's not martial arts action. It's not stunt guys, but it's something that as an audience member, you've never seen before. And it's presented to you in a way that you wouldn't be able to achieve with just your imagination. I, I have high hopes for Ridley Scott's Napoleon. But one of the other things that we're losing with a lot of modern blockbusters is that idea of cinema as scope. You know what I mean? Like, mm, yeah, put me in the middle of something so overwhelmingly huge and just make me believe that I'm there. No, I was just going to jump on that because fields of extras. That's mm. what we're missing, dude. A lot of the time. A lot of the time you can totally tell that they locked down this street. And they computered out these people over here. But you could just feel it in the staleness of the image. The birds aren't fucking flying right, for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah. and it, it doesn't look right. And when you have taken over a town in Bucharest and you're going to blow up half of it because Tom Cruise says so, that feels different than all this world travel that they do in Marvel movies where it's just uh, you know they're not they're going to it's the volume di it's different neighborhoods in atlanta coupled with some <laughs> right. yeah, coupled with some green screen things <laughs> right you know what i'm saying you just feel it in your bones you don't know how to discern it and, and it's not to diss those products no. they're doing them as quickly and cheaply as they can but when somebody watching barry linden or something i'm mm. not even down with all that shit but damn that movie is an achievement because it's like it's 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 lit really by candles and shit and trying to find, you know, cameras that can, that can really shoot in the conditions we, we lived in, in those days, that is so much more immersive than 
just some plain day for night, you know, even though like stuff like Nope has done, um, yeah, day for night uh, in recent times. So you can do it. But like if you're just really there on a moonless night and seeing all the stars in the middle of the desert, the effort it shows that it took to film the things that Kubrick did, the things that Scorsese did, even with all the Scorsese, one of the few people I know of that utilizes the fast editing and the super quick mind of the present day, even in nineties and eighties movies, but still let it breathe when he let showed you the casino floor or showed Mm -hmm. you where they're burying this guy or, you know, he still let it breathe as the real world. He's doing something operatic and he needs, you know, this gel and he needs this and needs that to make it sort of artificial to suit his vision. But at the same time, when he pans this way in something like taxi driver, that's a real hallway with real people have scuffled and, and you, you know what I'm saying? Real people's yeah. nails are across the walls in this place. You can, you can feel it somehow. He's one of the few people who, who has some nice edits and a, and a lot of edits, frankly, that I think still fits that sort of giant cinematic mode. Uh, James Cameron's another one. And obviously the avatar movies are their own thing. But if you go back to something like Terminator two, you know, famously one of the most heavily edited examples of action scenes in mm-hmm. modern cinema but they still work and yep. again that comes down to the fact he's really crashing that truck through the la river aqueduct mm-hmm. and so if you're seeing it from 18 different angles as opposed to like a beautifully choreographed crane shot on the back of a pickup truck it kind of doesn't matter or maybe you're going to see the beautifully choreographed crane shot with a helicopter shot with a shot from the back of the motorcycle because He's just going to do all that. But the fact is it's happening and Mm -hmm. that makes a difference. Even like Indiana Jones, I got to say, I think that I think for like the kid from fucking Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones kind of got us used to a little bit of like how much you could do with green screen. Because there's a A lot in the later movies, especially that it's just like, wow, homie, this is like the start of this bullshit. You know what I mean? Indiana Indiana Jones, I think 100% was the the first movie to kind of serve you some cheese with your blockbuster. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. you know, and that's no affront to Spielberg because you look at something like Jaws, that's a blockbuster movie with a very small premise and a very small budget. But Spielberg makes that movie feel big and he never betrays, you know, the tone of his piece. Well, that we're talking about cinematic experiences, uh, yeah. seeing Jaws in a real theater or sitting in, a, sitting in some water or any way where it's big, magnifique. But you're back to Indiana Jones. 100%. No, I'm, I would go out so far out on a limb as to say I don't know that any of the Indiana Jones movies qualify as a cinematic experience for me. Mm, you might get some pushback on that. I think the oldsters who saw Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theater – had to have been moved by things like the uh, the rolling boulder and the dragging sure. himself under the truck and stuff. I mean, I think that that was their kind of John Wick slash Fresh Gordon. You know, it was like it was like a throwback, and it was also done with like new technology for their time. You know what I mean? I just think that I they it's, and the 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 and the scenes with all the freaking snakes and the the you put the thing up and the sun shines through the thing is oh, I, I think a lot of that is I think the people of the day really thought that that was a big one but of course i don't think that they liked it as much as they liked the goddamn exorcist let's talk about that bullshit <laughs> that is a cinematic experience people oh. were dying and falling all over themselves and you know 
And, and by the way, so as someone who's seen both Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Exorcist back in theaters, um, Exorcist wins hands down. Not, <laughs> I mean, I, I might say Exorcist is a better movie, but Exorcist is certainly a better theater experience. Hmm. And I, I think that opens up a question, you know, for a movie to really qualify as one of the greatest cinematic experiences, how well does it need to hold up? Because... As much as Indiana Jones may have done some really thrilling things that nobody had ever seen before, I would say the spectacle of Rumble in the Bronx holds up better than the spectacle of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that's See, no that's knock on Raiders as a movie, but like, just think about just the visceral thrill, the cinematic experience. Take, you know, your eight-year-old self out of the equation. Which mm-hmm. one holds up better as a big screen spectacle to witness with your own two eyes? Well, I mean, I I tend to, if we're going by my rubric, which is all we can do, I sure. think some of the ones that I find come and snatch the, uh, snatch the meat out of the old lion's mouths, like uh, Indiana Jones and even Jaws and stuff like that, are like the fucking Raid Redemption, man. If somebody mm. said that they had a 70 millimeter print of the Raid Redemption and we were just going to go watch whatever print of the Raid Redemption, we were going to go watch that bitch right now. I'd, ha- I'd get my coat in two seconds. It's sure. it's dude. People are getting fucked up and super unique stunts that are amazing. And the story is so simple. That, and with the guy is such a cipher that you can't help but bond with him instantly and hope that he gets out of here. And just a, and as he goes higher and higher in the building, more and more corruption besets him. And it's it's just great <laughs> that's movies man i agree with you man but i think i think again i don't want to be somebody who's um who's knocking 80s movies so let me just throw out there i think die hard completely holds up as a cinematic experience like yeah, you put die hard on a movie theater screen hell yeah like an audience that has never seen die hard and they have the opportunity to see it on a theater screen 10 times out of 10, baby, like that is mm-hmm. a movie savored on the big screen. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the thing about the thing about a, a Die Hard, um, and like I said, when I was a little kid, I did, I was a witness to it in the theater. And when fucking Carl Winslow bust a cap in that Swede or whatever at the end, dude, I couldn't hear. You know what I'm saying? Like that little kid, your little kid hearing. I couldn't yeah. hear. They were cheering <laughs> so loud for fucking for Winslow. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. like, uh, uh, I I just love, I love all that shit. I love the fact that you are the character. Once again, it's one of these great movies. John McTiernan. I understand. You know, uh, um, homeboy. God damn, I always forget his name. Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart did the first draft, and it was the one that discovered that he should be saving his wife, not his daughter. I do believe. And then Stephen E. D'Souza comes on and does a lot of the work to try to make it funnier and make it be just a little bit more play to the strengths of the actors in regards to their, you know, abilities at lib, like Alan Rickman's English accent and all that kind of stuff. He came in and wrote those scenes. I'm just saying as a movie product, it, it, it I wish mission impossible was directed with of the Elan that Die Hard's so-called quiet scenes was directed with. 
I do believe those movies would be towering cinematic achievements with great stunts if the downtime scenes and the talk to you getting to know you scenes were filmed as great as Die Hard. Every fucking scene in Die Hard is a winner, dude. His introduction to the to the young kid with the limo, him, uh, the guy seeing his gun at the thing. Hey, no, I'm a cop. Don't worry about it. Uh, uh, the chicks in the airport, big bears, all this bullshit, getting his luggage. Everything is just letting you know who this guy is. He's smoking a cigarette. He's He rides up front in the limo. He's making fists with his toes, and that's why he doesn't have shoes on. It's like everything is to show you that this is a real man about to go through real stuff. And all the shots of the Nakatomi uh, building to show you the geography oh. of everything, very yeah. cinematic to show you, okay, this is the large world, but this is the only world we'll be exploring for the rest of this movie. This is the world. So let me give you the layout. Beautiful. That movie does beautiful things with juxtaposing large and small spaces. Mm-hmm. which I think is what you're you're getting at. And again, it's one of those things that like a TV show, no matter how well funded is not going to achieve this sort of unique cinematic vision of space, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to contrast this giant towering phallic building on the otherwise unimpressive skyline of West Los Angeles. And we're going to shoot it with, freaking helicopters at sunset and at night from every angle. And we're going to show you like the big, you know, gaudy sort of uh, um, marble entryway and, you know, this big wide open corporate space where they're having their party. But then we're also going to be down in the vault, in the freaking air vents with John McClane in the cramped, you know, above the elevator in the stairwells and like just that use of space there's a rhythm to it. There's a there's a uniqueness to it that it's like, oh, I'm watching something with a point of view. And mm-hmm. I, again, that is something that's so integral to like, I'm having an experience. It's a cinematic experience. And again, I just put, slam this point home. You are the guy. You're yes. in the vents. You're jumping down the stuff. You're not necessarily, most of the scenes, you're not just necessarily watching this guy. You are him. And you're thinking how you would work this out. You know what I'm saying? And good thing that this guy is playing you better than you could play you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Good thing his yeah. ideas are better than your shit ass ideas you would have. You know, yeah. and and you do, but you still get to watch him make the associations. Like, oh yeah, he's gonna grab that, grab that hose, and uh, yeah, you know, there's there's all these moments of you. It, it's the best of video games without having to all the nerve wracking part. You know, you get to see somebody doing all the cool stuff, and that's I think. John McClane is really instructive and you, us being able to be with him and see everything from his point of view and then hop outside of that because cinema doesn't have to be a one man play on the stage confined by this thing. Cinema can go anywhere it wants. So while sure. he's in this insular small rooms, expansive conference rooms that get shot up with bullets, broken glass everywhere, people pissing the streets, they just don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that stuff is going on inside and outside is this mounting force of all these fuckers coming to coming to surround the building and do nothing to get real <laughs> close to watch him save everybody. <laughs> you know what right. I'm saying? Or right. to it's just that's what's so amazing to it. So I think him being able to make it so insular inside and have us root with be with McLean and be McLean to such a degree. And then be able to pop out without us kind of popping us out of the movie or making it seem like like the idiots like to say, like, we're in a different movie. Everything is still cohesive. You know what I'm saying? As we go around to the the asshole newscaster, Al Powell outside on the radio, you know, his his wife in the other room, you know, with Takagi and them, all that stuff. We get to see these distinct areas. So, yeah, you're right, man, to bring that up. It it holds up. And I would say 
even with the fucked up shark, go see Jaws in a movie theater. It'll kick you in the nuts. It's from 1975. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, and I it's think- mostly the in-between scenes. It, that's an example of how cinema can make the in-between scenes. Show me the way to go home. We're comparing scars. Uh, fucking should come down to shovel this shit. All these things aren't necessarily the biggest pyrotechnic and the biggest sharky things. Uh, the you know the the Kittner boy, uh, Kittner boy's mom smacking Brody. That's a cinematic <laughs> moment. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Well, and I think to that point, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but in terms of the way they use the camera, a real movie is also shot with the understanding that the audience is going to be looking at a 50 foot screen. And so when you look at something like that USS Indianapolis scene on the boat in Jaws, again, it's not single on Quint, single on Brody, single on Richard Dreyfuss, and cut between them. It's like Spielberg stages it in the three shot. And yes, we do eventually punch in so that we're dead on Quint as he goes into his big monologue. But it's like that spatially can breathe. And then we ever so slowly start closing the doors on that one guy as the experience gets more and more harrowing. But just if you're listening to this and you haven't thought about it this way, watch for that in movies. The more times they're just showing you a head and shoulders single on on one actor and cutting between that and a head and shoulders single on another actor, that is the antithesis of cinema. And you will see the best directors who know how to direct for the screen give you very little of that. They move actors. They stage two shots, three shots, wide shots. They move the camera rather than just cutting from simple image to simple image. Yeah. And I think they want to – I think geography is a big part of it. I mean, we've, mm-hmm. we've tiptoed around it a little bit, but realistically, whether you're shooting an action scene, a dance scene, a regular talking scene, an exposition scene, I got to know where we are and I got to I gotta be introduced to where we are in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times these days, they just go Bucharest and then cut to a set in Studio City. And it's right. like, well, or, you didn't show me why. Or they just fly a drone at a weird angle as fast as it can go through the streets of Bucharest, and then you're on the street, which is yeah. also not exactly an affecting cinematic entrance to a space. No, dude. So it's like, I, I think it is interesting how many, um, when we start saying that shows have a cinematic bent, like people have have said that succession is cinematic. And mm. I think it just avails itself of the best of television and a lot of movies have decided that like we're gonna rack zoom to the Tyrannosaurus so that we can pretend that there's a real camera, you know, right. <laughs> here. Like shit like that. It's like, oh look, the TIE fighters are over there. We better we better uh, put a split diopter on this camera. <laughs> it's like, okay, bud. <laughs> we know this is all CGI garbage. I I, I applaud the effort though. I applaud the yes. effort to make me feel as though real photography is being used to shoot these fake ass objects. I really mm-hmm. appreciate it, but I'm like getting tired of it already. You know what I'm saying? It, uh, it's weird. I think taking a little bit more time to hire people like Ron Cobb to make Thulsa Doom's castle at the end of Conan that burns down, they totally mm-hmm. built it. Mm-hmm. And when it burns down, it's affecting because it really existed. And then when it burns down, it does no longer exist. And it's not just slapping a bunch of pixels back together. 
it's hey, a man. real place that burned down. You feel something. Compare that scene to the crumbling of Sauron's tower in the return of the king. It's an amazing moment in that movie when that eat with the tower when the tower with the evil eye on top of mm-hmm. it falls down into the pit. But the fact that it's an obvious CGI thing mm-hmm. robs it of some of the power. Like, I'm not taken yeah. away from that movie or its achievement, but it's like, goddamn, if they would have found a way to build like a one-eighth scale tower, like build a 20 goddamn foot tall tower out in a field somewhere. Mm-hmm. and dynamite it and shoot it in slow-mo and comp that in like i think you got a little bit more juice well and i think they in mo- you know knowing weta they try to try to do certain things as practically they as they can so i bet they try to do something like that but yeah the overall shot that was used used a little bit too much cgi for a lot of people's taste and just it's it looked didn't look real it didn't look like a real place that was being destroyed and i think we were keying on why these things are cinematic because I think they require actors and directors and screenwriters working together to like boost each other all up scenes where like the actor is just like able to go ham and nobody cares about the camera angles. Sometimes people make movies like that. Actors tend to direct movies like that (laughs) as good as the ones where the directors are like, no, 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 no. You're like a glorified couch. Just let me tell you where to be for the feng shui of the fucking scene. And then you can emote <laughs> over there on that mark. That may be a little bit too much. So maybe the actor goes, well, it's not natural. Blah, blah. These people all have to work in concert. If the writer puts down that this scene has to turn the plot of the movie, you can't shoot it in this weird two-shot both over the shoulder. But I, I, I applaud the way they did it in Heat. They were saying that they didn't think that the guys were in the same room in heat and i think i've heard michael mann defend his choices in that thing by not just doing a simple shot of them both but he was trying mm. to say something about like how far apart they were in their yeah. ideologies and they were in the same space but not quite and all this hot shit he's doing and i heat is another fucking cinematic that's cinematic as fuck i saw that i remember that i i remember for real seeing that in the movies and when motherfuckers start shooting downtown man it hit it hit real close to home man oh yeah Oh, yeah. No, I mean, most Michael Mann, most of the good Michael Mann movies, I'll amend mm-hmm. my statement. Most of the good mm-hmm. Michael Mann movies mm-hmm. are towering cinematic achievements. Heat, probably most of all. But even something like Collateral, which, you know, famously was a lot of it was shot on videotape. You know, they mixed film stocks. It's kind of grainy. You know, it's not mm-hmm. exactly the sort of big epic you know, technically perfect masterwork that you might think of as being like a true cinematic experience. But the other things we've talked about, the use of space, the protagonist that you're literally occupying the brain and eyes of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, finding finding those rhythms where we're not just seeing it like it's a TV show, all that stuff, that's a movie that does it beautifully. And I saw that movie in, in theaters and it just... It's still good on on demand or what, however you're going to watch it at home. But man, if for whatever reason they ever bring that movie back to theaters, go see it in theaters. But Heat, Heat's an all-timer. I mean, Heat is one of those movies, even just the use of long lenses in Heat, where they're making so much of that movie feel like it's being shot through binoculars or through you know surveillance equipment. And then we get into that gunfight and suddenly it's wide angle handheld camera work 
right up in guys' faces as they're just busting off AK-47s right next to the lens. And suddenly you're like, oh, my God. Like, it's almost too much. And yeah. I think that's that's a point in its favor for being a real cinematic experience. Dude, and they make you really feel like uh, people really try to crap on how fucking long it is and how it's definitely got some butch and fabian type scenes from you know pulp fiction where they're just sort of talking about pot bellies and blueberry pie and shit it's definitely got some of that but it's to root you in the world i think that's one trick that cinema uh you know uh real cinemaniacs and filmmakers really do employ is yo if you're sitting on your ass watch this a long time it has a long time to seep into you and to establish its rhythm as the rhythm of how information is being parsed and you really it is kind of a little trick you know a long ass movie is kind of a little trick to be epic it feels epic because it's long as fuck but also it, it it's its operating system gets a chance to work on you its voice has a chance to, to work on you and i'm just thinking like heat's longness part of it is how disjointed and weird each of their lives are. Mm. And we have to see just enough of these people's lives to give a fuck about their lives. So we can have a split loyalty at the end, even though most people root for the cop because they're conditioned. Um, And then, uh, you know, you know, in the end there, it's still sort of in question who you're, who you're rooting for, because we have seen this thief and, and we've got a couple of pieces of information about him. Like he risked his freedom to go shoot this guy he had beef with, but we know because the movie's so goddamn long that that guy he's risking his freedom to go shoot instead of just going to the airport with Edie. That guy's a super racist serial killer rapist who mm-hmm. deserves it a lot. So you're just like, ah, it's so stupid for you to go do that. But I think I really need you to go get Wayne Grow because this guy's a total piece of shit. The movie's just long enough to tell you that about that guy, to tell you about the black uh, wheel man who gets like twenty, gets like nine minutes of screen time, but it's played by Dennis Haysbert. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, you have to know that that dude is fucked. And when Neil comes to him with this offer of like, you can stay here getting fucked by these people because of a mistake you made in the past, or you could just embrace your mistakes and be a criminal piece of shit like me and go do this job. We need a wheel, man. The fuck? There ain't no question as to what th- that character would do given the trials and tribulations we've seen him go through. And again, why were we spending time with this black chef? We're supposed to be with these Italian stallions having an act off. Why are we spending a bunch of time with Val Kilmer and this bitch? And they talk, oh, because his gambling debts are why he's even in this situation. And so on and so forth. Through a three-hour runtime, you get all these people's stories and when the conflagration happens at the end, it has so many more stakes than will these people get away with a bank robbery? Right. It's a major life point in all these different people's lives. We find out why through the length of the movie. That's a, that's a great analysis of that. Yeah. That idea that like the climax isn't just contained to the plot, but it it, it is like an inflection point in the lives of people whose existences you understand. And yes, I, It brings up an interesting question for me in that, you know, our conversation earlier, especially around the idea of like having the relatable protagonist that you're really riding shotgun with versus something like Heat, which is more concerned with the ensemble and sort of building that tapestry. You know, does the great cinematic experience have to have a traditional hero's journey to be like the greatest of all time? Because as great as Heat mm-hmm. is, and as much as we both love it, you know, I 
I know that's not going to be the consensus agreement among listeners that like, oh man, nothing tops that cinematic experience. But then I think about something like Star Wars, like the original, you know, episode four, and Mm -hmm. that being such a huge touchstone as a cinematic experience that it essentially created, you know, what we think of as the modern sci-fi blockbuster, maybe the best lesson that Lucas taught us was that, you know, not to make a great story, but to make a great cinematic experience, you defer to that hero's journey. I don't know. Am I, am I on to something there? It's it's the cipher. I've, I keep using that word, but all the main characters that are like, just this guy is great. What's so great about him? I, he's a good guy, man. He's <laughs> always good. He's doing good stuff. Those protagonists in movies are the in the most popular movies of all time. So yeah. Luke Skywalker, freaking uh, Jake Sully from Avatar. What 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 did he do that was so great? He started out as a paralyzed uh, individual soldier, or whatever, and he goes and he takes up for his dead brother. That gives us sympathy. Other than that, what do you really got to go on? Fucking nothing. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. there's nothing so that you could just fill him with anything you want. You can fill him with every yeah. good feeling that you want. I think that's a big part of your. I. It's not just that you're right. I mean, you're more than right. All of the biggest and and it's weird that we clutch up on these heroes we make so many movies about james bond but somebody with a even james bond's personality would be too much for modern blockbusters for you to have your main character be like that i don't even know if it's i mean i don't even know if it's modern blockbusters because i think you see it with luke in you know the original star wars it's just if you want to be along for the ride on something that is so grand and unexpected that you experience it more than watch it and understand it. It's like you, you kind of have to have the cipher, right? Like you have to be able to just insert yourself into the middle with no complications. Uh, I, I think that's what people think. That's why I said maybe modern, because maybe postmodern would be mm. something like the performance of RDJ as Iron Man. Because no matter how we all shave our beards and geometric shapes and how quippy we think we are, we are not RDJ in motherfucking Iron Man. Nobody watched that movie going, oh, that's me. They watched that mm-hmm. movie going, God damn, this dude is awesome. Sure. And I think we could do with a lot of that. I think we could do with a little bit of that reinjected in movies rather than this cipher bullshit. That's a great point, actually, because I'm thinking one of the – one of the best cinematic experiences I've had in the past couple of years, and it's something we've talked about on the show before, is The Northman. And mm-hmm. the main character in The Northman is anything but a but an everyman. He has a very archetypal story. Like it's it's a very sort of, you know, almost by the numbers revenge story, but I think in a different way than RDJ, Alexander Skarsgard plays that guy as a very specific, very not every man type of guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's as valid as anything, but again, we've screen written before and Mm -hmm. there is a propensity for you to give some of the best stuff 
to your tertiary characters. It's the same thing. And I do believe that that propensity comes directly from the hero with a thousand faces where it's like, okay, the hero is just some guy and he goes on an adventure and you're basically him, but he's going to meet a threshold guardian and a demon and a this and a that and a mentor and a da 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 da. And sometimes a th- threshold guardian will also be a mentor, but also be a trickster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all that bullshit look at oh, look at the playground of personality that you give every fucking body else but the hero i think that's why uh die hard is a, is a towering achievement die hard is john mcclain as much as that movie revolves around the plan of the villain die hard is john mcclain to the point where they could put this motherfucker in a box with a fox and a boat that you throw you could put him anywhere and it's still die hard because he was now obviously those movies were you know, diminishing returns. But I'm just saying sure. they felt that they could do it commercially seven, eight damn times, it seemed like, because of him, because he is it. So he's not a it's, cipher. It's so funny, like this conversation is coming back around to an episode we had before when we talked about movie stars as being like the greatest box office draw. And I think we were we were ambivalent about that. But I will say there is something to be said for having a bona fide movie star, the type of guy like a Bruce Willis or a Tom Cruise or even a Roy Scheider from back in the day with Jaws or mm-hmm. even an Alexander Skarsgård who is a talented and charismatic actor, if not quite, you know, one of the Hollywood Chrises. There's something to be said for taking your everyman type character and giving him to an actor who just has so much charisma that even playing somebody bland, they become indelible. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, that, no, I think that is interesting. And I think that's, and obviously being a good guy is sort of bland in the, in the way that we do stories since the 40s, sure. maybe, you know? And that's why everybody goes crazy every seven years for this, oh, this anti hero. Oh, this mm-hmm. good guy did something bad. Oh, the guy from Drive. Uh, stomp the guy's head apart in the elevator oh god it's <laughs> yeah. just like dude i think it got mixed up when we started putting x's on movies for violence and sex and people started brown bunnying if you don't know what that is look it up people started doing all this weird shit in regards to trying to make things have a verisimilitude i just think part of cinema is that some of this is really happening and i mm-hmm. think the actors what they what they do is ground us that they are real in this moment the writer is supposed to give them something to emote, something something that they, they're trying to hide from another character and another character trying to get it out of them so we could see the drama. And the director is supposed to let those people's those people play in a field where it looks like they're in the real world and we just happen to be like a fly on their shoulder. That seems to be what cinema is supposed to be. And I think that the, the actor really is an important part in making us feel as though this is really happening. But again, I think cinema could take somebody who wasn't the biggest star, but was a great actor and mm-hmm. put them in, in some, some real verisimilitude shit. Like there's a story of this girl who fell out of a plane. She's like 12 or something. Like she falls like two miles out of a, tr- out of a plane lands and hits a tree, lands in a swamp, fucks herself up. She does a couple of survival things. She learned in girl scouts, like uh, boiling water or whatever, ends up surviving like months in the in in swampland or whatever in some other country and this floats down river one day and meets some people and goes yeah i'm saved i saved myself just imagine any fucking body that could act okay and we watch that as a movie 
And we're totally. just with them. And they don't have to be fucking Jodie Foster. They don't have to be talking to everybody. But if they are Jodie Foster, Circa, whatever time, it's just right. going to pump it up even more. You know? Right. But does, well, that, does I, that affect the reality when there's stars in it? Because we, we are inured to that. But like, there are certain stories where you're just like, I like the fact that Blake Lively wasn't famous to me when she was in that movie, The Shallows, that I always mm-hmm. like. It had a great shark, and it was chomping on a girl that, hey, she might get her leg bit off. She might In the original screenplay, she did. Um, she right. might get her leg bit off. She might get eaten. This might be one of those movies like uh, Open Water where you, they, she doesn't escape. I was yeah. riveted, but she was enough of a star to get the movie made, but she wasn't a movie star to me, and it helped the movie. If that was fucking Meryl Streep on there, I'm like, this, this shark ain't going to eat Meryl Streep. No, I mean, you know what? That's a that's a really great point, because if you think about even some of the movies we've been talking about, you know, st- all the Star Wars actors, even Harrison Ford, you know, he had done some stuff, but it's like he wasn't screen icon Harrison Ford when they mm-hmm. made Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And then even even something, you know, I'm thinking of um, really great cinematic experiences that have sort of broke stars, you know, created new stars. Obviously, Robert Downey Jr. was known, but he had been off screen out of the public consciousness for a while when iron man happened and Mm -hmm. suddenly that shoots him into the stratosphere because it was a great cinematic experience even something like the witch um directed by robert eggers who also did the northman the witch i think is another great cinematic experience um that broke anya taylor joy she was an unknown and that was her coming out that movie yeah, um, and see, and that movie's a perfect example of how you can use cinema. First of all, all those big wide scenes and like oh, when when the bad thing happens to her younger sibling or whatever, and she just looks up and then she looks to the woods and there's like a, a couple blades of grass are moving mm-hmm. to, to, to denote that this monster has done this horrible act and jetted, jetted off into the woods. It's so fucking cinematic and so like yeah. – I think that moment is as scary as anything from uh, Ari Aster or any of these fuckers. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I agree. Well, and I think there's a part of that that is even of a piece with like the Jackie Chan stuff because you have to get it perfect. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And the filmmakers take the time to get it perfect. It's like Mm -hmm. it's not so obvious that, oh, we're going to put a person in the background and we're going to catch a glimpse of them. And it's not so obvious as like, oh, we're going to CG in some wobbling grass in the foreground. And yet it's not so subtle that you're like, what the fuck am I looking at? There's nothing there. It's Mm -hmm. just that perfect, like, I Mm -hmm. think I saw something, but did I see something? And And that's that's cinema. (laughs) That's what I mean. Like, that takes just as much of a perfectionism as Jackie Chan kicking over 15 guys using a stepladder. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think we're drilling down on it. So, okay, as far as our lists of movies that are true cinema, I think getting to what makes a cinematic experience, if I was going to summarize, I think a real sense of space. A real sense of place and a real sense of space. Or this ha- we have to be in what we perceive to be a real place, which is why shooting in the volume sucks. Mm-hmm. It sucks, Bobby. <laughs> it's ho- <laughs> it's horrible, and it's really fucking shit up. I watched that, and, and I'm not trying to be an asshole, but I definitely watched that um, uh, Secret Invasion joint. Oh boy. It's not just because a lot of it is shot in the volume, and especially even if it wasn't. Maybe I'm lying. Maybe I'm a dummy. I don't know where it was shot. It's boring. 
It's not cool. And then when they start getting super, it's like, oh, you could have kept oh, this boy. too. Oh my God, dude. It's a, a lick of versimilitude. A little bit of never say never again in that thing would have been great. Just a uh, whiff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, listen, I, you might find this controversial. I don't know that it's super controversial. I think the best use of the volume has been the Batman. Matt Reeves is the Batman. Because mm. when they used the volume, it was for a static background on a built set. Like they weren't, you know, driving on motorcycles down the street mm -hmm. in the volume and trying to convince you like, oh, no, this is real. Like when they mm -hmm. had to drive motorcycles down the street, they brought the fucking motorcycle out onto a real street and attached a camera to the motorcycle. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like that judiciousness it fits into as you're as you're rattling off like your criteria. It fits into that sort of perfectionism that you can kind of only afford when you're making a movie, right? Like yeah. we have yeah. to use every tool only to the best of its ability and no further. Mm -hmm. Like no, that's yep. that is also cinema. Yeah, and I, I, you know what's funny, dude? As much as I have railed against almost all Batman movies, because I'm one of those idiots. Yeah, you never, you'll never be as good as these. Uh, the what's between the gutters in my head? So stupid, sure. such a stupid attitude. I love all Batman movies because they're trying their ass off to be as good <laughs> as Batman is in the comics. That's that's my new position. I love all of them. Uh, and one of the things in my reappraisal is how f how absolutely cinematic. The, the Batman is mm. it, it really is upon a fun second and third glances. You're just like, damn, there's a lot of real, real like um, precision in this, in this vision. There's a lot yes. of uh, this has to be like this. And there's a lot of um, there's a, there's a good adherence to certain physics. Now when Batman gets blown up, that whole section of the movie is ass. I'm sorry. But sure. beyond that, most of the physics and most of the other interactions were, were really great. Like to the point of him rappelling down walls instead of just jumping into space and mm -hmm. a, a lot of really cool stuff uh, with the obviously with the car, that car chase happens for no reason. And it's stupid, but it's awesome. <laughs> it is an awesome car chase. You just have to you just have to chalk that up to like that's a relic of the late seventies, early eighties, where like every crime movie needed to have a car chase for no reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just give me one reason. It's like, oh, we gotta we gotta get the penguin. I could get the penguin where he's at all the time. Dude, I gotta say, <laughs> look, I get it, but I have to say, if you if you listener have never seen the movie To Live and Die in L.A it will make you want to slit your wrists because it is a depressing nihilistic movie. But there is an absolutely hilarious example of how car chases were shoehorned into every movie. There is like a 15 minute car chase. <laughs> I want to say almost in act three of that movie that has nothing to do with the main plot. It's literally <laughs> like the characters stumble into a stakeout that's happening by a totally different organization, by a totally different law enforcement organization against totally different criminals, right? It has nothing to do with the main plot, and it turns into a huge set piece car chase. So that's the tradition in which the Batman is working. I'm telling you, there's a generation that thinks that Michael Bay at, at his height was the height of cinema. Okay, this is. I, I'm glad you bring this up because I do want to give some props. 
Michael Bay, as we know, literally doesn't care about the script. Like he, Michael Bay has more than once shot huge chunks of movie with no mm -hmm. working script. Mm -hmm. So be that as it may, a couple things Michael Bay does great. Michael Bay shoots on location as much as possible, including his action scenes. Mm -hmm. Michael Bay tries to capture as many practical elements in camera as possible. Mm -hmm. Most of those Transformers movies, he went out in the middle of real city streets, dressed it with debris out the ass, and set off huge explosions that would rattle windows, and then he just CG'd in the robots. And yep. I think that's dope as shit. Dude, he chopped that bus in half, dude. When that when that yeah. one that one dude appears and just brrr, rips through a bus, an actual bus got ripped in half. And you could see it tumbling and trying to keep going on the road in in its own way, but without with its wheels all messed up. That's what I'm talking about. That's what these creatures would do to the world. There, you have to see the detritus that they leave behind, and it can't just be CGI bricks. Okay. Yeah. We have to see the detritus that these people leave. That's what makes them super. And I mean, just go. Go back to the mid-90s, and of this weird trilogy of destruction movies, you have Michael Bay's Armageddon, you have Independence Day, and then you have Armageddon's much lesser you know, cohort in Deep Impact. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were to tell me that Independence Day has a much more rip-roaring, feel-good, exciting script, you are correct. If you mm -hmm. were to tell me that Deep Impact treats that story with a lot more scientific fidelity and a lot more humanism, you are correct. But mm -hmm. for on-screen spectacle, Michael Bay mops the floor with those other two movies. And that's why you would want to see Armageddon in theaters. Dude, Armageddon is a cinematic experience. The fucking first Transformers is a cinematic experience. Yeah, man. that's just real life, man. <laughs> yep. Again, we know what Michael Bay, Michael Bay sort of grew into just sort of like weird Snyderish cult, but without a lot of the, I don't know, without as much jerkitude as far as his fans and Michael Bay fans seem to be just like, Hey man, we love it. The thing about Michael Bay is if you're into Michael Bay, you literally can't have a philosophy because Michael, <laughs> Michael Bay's whole thing is just like, I don't give a fuck. Like, Dude, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, Dude, I kind of like that more and more. And is that what the corporate overlords are going to dig him out like Megatron from the ocean and just have him do all the movies again? Because his fun, loving style is the perfect thing for our divided times. Is, is, is he going to make a comeback? You know what? I, I'm I'm kind of liking what you're throwing down here. I'm kind of feeling <laughs> Dude, Interesting. Put, put him on some of those new popcorns. Ah, oh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> Oh God, I don't want to. I don't want to fucking put that much pressure on us. But I, I would love to see Michael Bay attack X, and I think personally, oh, I don't want to even throw these fools a bone like this. But if Michael Bay directed a Fast and the Furious movie, he would kick off in that ass. Are you? He would me, make dude? it so sick. And they 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 it'd be violent as fuck too. <laughs> they'd be shooting oh, the shit out of people and jumping over shit. And the 100%. earth would be about to end from a meteor, you know. I the only thing I'll say is there is no way in hell Michael Bay and Vin Diesel could stand 24 hours in each other's presence. For, absolutely not. Forget, forget an entire movie shoot. Like that yeah, clashing of not. egos, good lord. But yeah, like uh like also, and if we're talking about, you know, something that feels cinematic, I, I, again, when he was, when he would always do that twirl around, swirl around camera 
you know, swirl around everybody, just like, oh, the world's in such flux. The camera won't stop moving to, for us to catch a beat on anything. It's just too much information overloading our brains. Yeah. That shot, it's cinematic. It's silly, Dude. but it's really cinematic. <laughs> you let, know? let me tell you something. As somebody who has actually in a spoofy way, back when I was in film school, I attempted to do a single take in a Michael Bay style. And so we used a long ass lens, like a 90 millimeter lens, which is usually something reserved for like one of those close-ups where the whole background is out of focus. Right. And we, we essentially designed like, it wasn't a full 180 degrees, but it was probably 150 degrees, like on a track and we're rack focusing from one character to another. And it Mm -hmm. was, it was very much that Michael Bay swirl to get that shot. Perfect is fucking difficult. That's fucking <laughs> difficult yeah, for a professional man. focus puller because when you're on even a medium length, high quality lens and you're getting background blur and you're trying to move the camera that much, that fast and keep your subject matter in focus, that is a feat. And so, again, mm-hmm. going back to the sort of cinematic perfectionism we've been talking about, that qualifies. Definitely. Over the course of the, the recording, we've gotten down what our criteria for a cinematic experience is. So mm-hmm. what are some of the ones we haven't discussed that are just like, to, to, to you, slam dunk, great cinematic I've, experience? I've got two, and I don't think either one's going to be surprising to anybody who knows me. But the first one would be the original Matrix. Yep, I, I have I would have that on my list too. That yep. thing is a monster. I yeah, I mean I think that that fits every criteria we've talked about here, except yep. for maybe the idea of not having a super established movie star as your lead. But that's also weird because Keanu has always been such a blank slate that him being an established movie star kind of doesn't hurt you the same way it does if like George Clooney and Brad Pitt are just having a fun time in your lead roles. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think we've conditioned ourselves to think that like a movie star just does bangers all the time, but like a movie star gets things made and most things Mm -hmm. that get made suck. Mm -hmm. So I think we've been conditioned now that movie stars are kind of gun shy and they'll just like jump to a franchise and like maybe do a Netflix movie with their buddy, but mostly stay hidden behind the, the, the waistcoats of larger IP and stuff. A lot of actors seem to be taking that role, you know, uh, like we forget that like, you know, Johnny Mnemonic. And then he did two other movies that year that failed or like chain Mm -hmm. reaction and Johnny Mnemonic same year or whatever. You know what I mean? Like all of these, these actors, they're like not a guarantee of anything. And yes, I do believe his cipher ability and his perfect, uh, hero with a thousand faces, ability if the hero with a thousand faces had a motherfucking face it'd be keanu reeves's goddamn face oh my god that's an that's put that on on the t-shirt because i I (laughs) could not agree with that more right there (laughs) so Um, yeah the matrix is a big one the matrix is one and the other one maybe goes without saying but 2001 a space odyssey that one breaks a lot of the rules that we're talking about and i think maybe it's just the sheer virtuosity of the filmmaking that that allows it to hold up even if you're one of these people that's tried to watch it on a tv and has fallen asleep five times if you ever get the chance see a 70 millimeter print on a screen 
And if you are near or visiting LA, they do it yearly at the Egyptian. It is an unbelievable experience and you will have to pinch yourself to be like, oh, none of this is digital. None of this is computer generated. This is all models and matte paintings. And somehow it looks as good as any fucking space movie you're going to see. I absolutely agree with that assessment. I mean, you know, it's wild. I know that I've recommended this movie before and people, they just don't hear me though. Mm -hmm. You gotta watch the first Conan, Conan the (laughs) Barbarian by Mm -hmm. John Milius, a screenplay by Oliver Stone, who wrote a really crazy ass draft that uh, John Milius didn't really use any of, but he was so inspired. He left Mm -hmm. Homeboy to have a screenplay credit and get that money because John Milius was a stand-up guy. And basically, dude, it's just so cinematic because so much is real. Real animals, real even with the stuff that isn't so convincing, like there's a big-ass uh, snake that's a real practical snake. And he looks kind of cool from certain angles, but <laughs> it's not really that great. But sure. the fact that when you hit a pillar, it come, the marble comes apart. The world is breakable around these big men. He, there's a crucifixion scene that seems pretty realistic. You know, there's right. there's all these and all these tableaus to show you that this place that we're in, this untouched land, this this Hyboria, we're really here. There's wolves over there. We pan 180 degrees and see nothing for miles around, and you've just gotten stolen from your clan by some dudes. So what you going to do, run away? No, you're going to be a good slave and kick it until you can have a chance to slit their throat at night. And then you fucking build up your body. It's got so much of that stuff of the of the cipher of Conan, too. Because, like, obviously you could never be as dope as Conan. He is Ethan Hunt times a billion, you know. Sure, sure. But he's such a blank slate in the story that the few – Things, uh, uh, the honor, the 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 sort of uh, feudal uh, uh, religiosity that he has for Crom, all these things are kind of quaint and admirable, you know, to graft onto your character. And through the rest of it, you're just like you're getting strong, just like Conan's getting strong. And his enemies <laughs> yes. are your enemies. It's got a lot of that. And like I said, real sets. The 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 last giant villain set that gets burned down was they built it out of wood and stone and rock and everything, like a real place. Uh, the all of the trappings and palaces and stuff they really built or they shot in places that already had palace elements just added on and it's just there's such a realism to his adventure that you you give it up even when some of the action choreography isn't quite modern or the like a big snake is a little rubbery or whatever mm-hmm. it still has this epic feeling of reality it's it's to me it's very much like Jaws, and I know that's probably the hottest take ever. But it's like there are central <laughs> performances in it that are great. We're talking about a uh, homeboy that does the, an Indianapolis speech, and we're talking about James Earl Jones at his height of his powers. We're, ta- yep. we're ta- the, these actors that aren't the main actor, but like rooted root this whole world in reality. It's got great um, it's got great scenes of like camaraderie between people. You know the the three the troika in Jaws, the troika in Conan the Barbarian. I could go on, but the bottom line is. Conan the Barbarian is worth your time as a real cinematic experience. So please see it on the biggest screen you can and pump up that fucking soundtrack, dude. It's There's something immersive and powerful. And I'm telling you, they tried to make Conan several times, knockoffs of Conan and yep. Conan itself. Every time they try, they fail because they're doing too much volume shooting. Their cipher <laughs> in the movie isn't even as interesting as a very 
unskilled actor of of Arnold Schwarzenegger, they still don't have the raw charisma that he had. Even back yeah. then, before he learned, they still don't have it. Jason Momoa didn't have it. I'm sorry. Pepsi Boy, You're everybody right. loves, didn't have what it took to play Conan at all. And the movie yeah. didn't support him, but he didn't have it either. And it's just, it's shit is real, man. Conan the Barbarian, people like to put it in this weird thing because Conan the Destroyer is kind of silly, but Conan the Barbarian is a singular fucking achievement, and it is very goddamn cinematic by all the metrics we've talked about. The sort of unquantifiable charisma of Schwarzenegger, which was also something that got over on Cameron, as we've talked about before, when he was casting Terminator, mm-hmm. you know, that goes back to that idea that, like, you do need an actor with that certain je ne sais quoi to make a truly great cinematic experience. I just want to give up, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure movies that we could have talked about that we missed. I think we kind of hit the ones that really would be in the running. Um, the only couple things I want to mention that we haven't talked about are saving private Ryan, mm. not just the opening 20 minutes, which, you know, goes down as some of the greatest filmmaking of all time. Um, was literally giving people PTSD flashbacks, uh, veterans like in theaters. But mm-hmm. even the rest of that movie, it's a Spielberg joint. So, you know, from a craft perspective, from a shot selection filmmaking perspective, it's immaculate, but it's also Spielberg at the height of his powers. And up until the last frame, like the verisimilitude of that movie, the feeling of being immersed in it, the use of space, the ge- the use of geography, it's it's stunning. So that needs to be in the running. And that just also makes me think, as far as like six minutes out of a movie go, that opening scene of the original X-Men, you have to give it up for the Magneto origin. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. if you need... If you need, in a nutshell, like what we mean when we talk about a cinematic experience, that scene is like the perfect illustration, even if the rest of the movie maybe isn't. Well, I think it's pretty funny, though, for such people who are so far up Marvel's ass. I came out the other (laughs) side. I bust through the collarbone some time ago. But, you know, (laughs) um, I believe it's instructive and interesting that we have not mentioned Anything like um, Infinity War, Endgame, yeah. I don't even think it came into our minds because when you really look at the things that we've we found deleterious to actually being cinematic are well employed in those movies from shooting in the volume to uh, all this just ridiculous green screens of all sorts. Fuck the volume. Just ridiculous yeah. green screens of all sorts trying to do a CGI thing every single time. Like If there's a little key and you flip it like this and it pops open and there's a little dragon head with a jewel in its mouth that you take the jewel like a piece of Pez out and you put it onto a computer and it hacks a machine or whatever. They'll do that in CGI. Yeah. Can you get some fucking master carver to fucking get on that for a second and do this little, you know what I'm saying? Get some guy to make this thing so he can hold it in his hand. But no, he, he pushes the button you. and all this CGI shit happens. It's pathetic, dude, and it can't be saving that much goddamn money. If we're if we're this put off by it, how much money is it really saving? Because I don't want to give my money to shit that does that anymore. No, completely. And you know, I I think this is we can wade into these waters a little bit. I am long on the record of saying Infinity War is the is the superior product to Endgame, and alongside everything you just said, if you look at an apples to apples comparison there 
the stars of Infinity War are Downey as Tony Stark and Josh Brolin as Thanos. The mm. stars of Endgame, yes, you still have Downey, but it is much more Chris Evans's movie as Captain America mm-hmm. and arguably Scarlett Johansson's big swan song as Black Widow. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, Downey and Josh Brolin are just immensely more captivating actors in more mm-hmm. captivating roles than Evans and Scarlett Johansson, whom I love, but yeah. just on an apples to apples basis, yeah. your je ne sais quoi that you need from your lead actor is there in spades in Infinity War more than it is in Endgame. That's yeah. I, I'll go to my death thinking that. Damn, that is, you know what? I totally agree. That is it. I think Captain America does a lot better job in my favorite of his movies, which is the Winter Soldier, obviously, uh, and and even Captain America fucking Civil War. Both of those movies, he is the main guy, and he's supposed to be the main guy, and Tony Stark's charisma in Civil War, actually, is supposed to really hurt. You know what I'm saying? His charisma and his being so dope is supposed to be like, ah, fuck, man. I, I fucked this guy over and I have this weird secret from him and all this kind of it. His you see RDJ from outside in that movie. It isn't his movie. It's how people perceive him. That was really great. And Chris Evans mm-hmm. thrived in that milieu. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, Infinity War for the win, dude. So but we didn't think of those movies because they're not inherently cinematic because, uh, again, a lot of times they're not giving us enough. Li- I think languorish establishing, shot, establishing shots are part of setting the scene. You can't just show me a drone shot of Bucharest and then, like we were talking about. No, man. Drone shot yeah. down to a theater in Atlanta. No, 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 no. Come down. Go past the Parthenon. Catch me and my girl coming up the steps of this thing that really exists with real yeah. Italians walking by us. <laughs> you know? It's Do true. that. Honestly, man, like, I love what the Russo brothers did in the MCU. I think they're MVPs, but... Their background as TV directors shines through a little bit too much in their directing Mm -hmm. efforts to really put them in the running for at least this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, and that's very fair, which is okay. So this is the question though, because I know you've seen all of Nolan's oeuvre and Ah. consider him to be a scenist, but for me, the stuff that I have seen, the stuff that I watch It'd be hard. I'd be hard pressed besides maybe when the truck flips over and a couple of the tumbler scenes and the and tumbler, tumbler scenes of Batman begins. And when the truck flips over at dark night, besides those two times, I just, I don't find it very cinematic. See, that's, that's interesting. I think Nolan has gotten more cinematic as he goes along. I think probably the most cinematic movie he's ever made is Dunkirk. Um, okay, I would agree with that. I would agree. That's what I'm saying. I'm just saying that the stuff that I've seen and I and I care about as far as subject matter, it feels like he TV Michael Mann. And I know we just said Michael Mann's a great uh, cinematic dude, but if there was a guy that took the Michael Mann of TV and then mm-hmm. bumped it up to movies, it would be Christopher Nolan, in my personal opinion, up to a certain time, a point in time, at least. I, I would you agree know. with that. I mean, I I think Nolan handles space and geography very well. I think he's got a little bit of David Lean in him in terms of his proficiency in letting a frame breathe 
I mean, there's some work with practical locations and just, I don't even want to say workmanlike, but, but understated camera work, almost like a Coen brothers level of like, I'm not going to call attention to this, but it's awesome. The way he's using practical locations in the dark night in particular Mm-hmm. Yes, the truck flip is amazing, but even just some of like the office scenes in Harvey Dent's office, in Gordon's office, you know, even uh, the stunt where he, uh, Batman is is busting into that skyscraper. I love yeah. the fact that Nolan shoots on location, and the the shots are never a Spielbergian or a Michael Bay style. Like, watch what I can fucking do with this camera. Yet. He finds amazing angles and lights it in a way that allows you to see everything without killing the mood. And I love that. So, yeah, I, I, I think his uh, his propensity to be like, look at this dope ass shot I caught. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like, it seems like a lot of his a lot of especially establishing shots will be like this weird, almost Fincher-esque, like camera moving like top left to bottom right. Yep. Glimpse of something. Grab it hold it, understand where we are. Another one, another one. We're here. We're there. You know what I'm saying? Like that type of shit. I, I see him doing that. And then the, obviously the hands ever scores just pounding when he does that shit. And it gives you a sense of like locomotion. So I, yeah. I'm definitely getting all that. But like I said, I just think it's like, Oh, it's right there where it's just like, and Oh, and I was going to bring up earlier, Tony Scott. I think Tony Scott had something that's that was cinematic, one. but also televisiony with his yeah. propensity to use all these different media and film stock and stuff. Proto, I think he was doing it before Oliver Stone. I think maybe I'm wrong. I think so. I uh, think so. But yeah, all the commercials, shooting all those commercials so that he could play around with all those techniques to learn all this shit. I just think Tony Scott was able to do a television cutty, like, I'm not exactly interested in all these David Lean shits. But mm. it was cinematic because he knew how to use that goddamn smoke machine and he knew how to like <laughs> this shit is off kilter. Like he wouldn't just do your face, your face off a little to the left, a little to the, the, those little those magical ratios that we look at in art books and stuff. The rule of thirds and shit like that. You can tell he even just look at true romance. You see the rule of thirds and all types of shit all through True Romance, and I don't think it's one of his towering achievements, but it's what sure. he does with with a with a with a postmodern screenwriter, and uh, and that sort of crime story, and just look how much like whimsy and magic he puts in it. But you know, I, you know my my only response to that, and I think that you're right on to pick up on some of the TV nuance to his work. Michael Bay does it better. <laughs> I just do it down. Do it down. I, look, look, just from a craft perspective, look, Michael Bay does not work with anywhere near the caliber of scripts and subject matter that Tony Scott did. So full stop. But yeah. in terms of just like globbing on that heaping helping of music video style on top of whatever it is that you're doing, I will take Michael Bay over Tony Scott. That's just my opinion. Well, yeah, and I think, well, ah, damn, that's rough. Uh, I I love me some Tony <laughs> Scott, but I can't I can't die with him on this hill. Uh, I think I think I might roll with the Michael Bay on that one. Oh, speaking of which, I think mm. the more cinematic 
the 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 more he got away from the goddamn superhero genre, frankly, or the more he gets away from the superhero genre, the more cinematic I think Christopher Nolan is. Because I I'll, I'll admit that I haven't seen Interstellar because somebody ruined it for me, so I'm gonna wait Ooh. for the I'm gonna wait for the shit to subside so I could just watch it as a piece of art, and I'll be able to do that pretty soon and just check it out. And I know that I'll love parts of it, but I think this farther he gets away from like superhero dumb and this sort of simple storytelling. Like I love memento. I thought memento was, I, if you would ask me at that year, what I saw was the most cinematic. I thought that goddamn movie was so fucking cinematic because every, every technique that it employed puts you more and more into that guy's um, uh, frame of mind. I and as you find out all of the different aspects of his frame of mind, the, the different film stocks, that show us the different areas of his development or non-development, the different places he's been, or maybe he hasn't all of that shit. God damn. That's an audacious ass motherfucking movie, man. That shit is the Look, shit, man. I mean, if you're talking a cinematic experience without spectacle, like so it's sort of a yeah, cinematic experience yes, without that's I brought that, it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without that sort of like polished perfectionism that we're fetishizing in a lot of these other guys, I think Memento's a great choice for what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, fucking, yeah. and, yeah, dude, I, and I think Memento did what people think the Safety Brothers are doing. I'm sorry, mm, I like them. I like mm. them a lot, and I tell you what, I'll watch Uncut Gems one more time because that ass was popping. But dude, <laughs> I I think they're so good at putting you on edge that so they put my ass on edge to edge on out the theater. Get, I don't want to watch this shit no more. <laughs> like it was yeah. really like so tense, and I knew that motherfucker. I knew he wasn't gonna win because he was just too smug, and he was always thinking he was gonna win, and I. Knew they weren't going to give me my Hollywood ending, and I'm glad they didn't. But goddamn, sure. there's just something memento. I'm just saying, people, it hasn't been seen this sort of jittery. Oh fuck, I'm really in this type of filmmaking for some for a little breakout hit like that. I think the Safety Brothers are kind of drafting off, you know, so not not drafting, but like that's the, that's the closest I can think of to something like like when Memento hit, just a sort of Correct. like. You got to watch this to feel uncomfortable, is what I'm saying. That I mean, and Uncut Gems have some lineage to me. I, I I would agree with that, and I think that Memento was probably the first movie to really do that. As far as like, I'm going to create a cinematic experience without the bells and whistles, and it's going to be so engrossing that like you're going to be blown off your ass. It was the first movie to do that since, I mean, probably Taxi Driver. You can say that about um, Reservoir Dogs, but it's it's a different kind of experience. Like that one is so caught up in sort of the artifice of the world it creates from the dialogue to a lot of the funny in jokes to the sort of like the way it treats the insularity of like the one location. Mm. Whereas you look at Taxi Driver and you look at Memento and like those are just they're not trying to be cute. They're not trying to do anything that's like self-reflexive. It's just. I have found a whole new way into making you feel something and you're going to go along for the ride. And I, yeah, yeah, I would agree kind of of that lineage would be what the Zafti brothers are doing. Yeah. Oh, and I just want to throw out, I'm not going to talk a whole bunch about it. Look at our whole catalog for how much I love Boogie Nights. Matter of fact, I'll make these fuckers well, watch Boogie Nights with me, but dude, Boogie Nights is fucking amazingly cinematic for something that doesn't have all those bells and whistles. I think that's, that's why he got put on the map like that. It's like, I mean, unless you count a big ass wiener as a, as a, butcher, as a bell and a whistle and many women yes. counted it as a whistle in that movie. But Indeed. the bottom line is uh, 
that movie doesn't have explosions or aliens or anything. And it's long as fuck. So it installs this operating system into you. And its main character is a fucking cipher. Its main two or three characters are empty ciphers for you to just watch their misadventures. And last things last, it has a just the basic plot of family and family dynamics. But it shows it to you in this totally different way using the techniques. And, la- and last things last things last, it fucking is obsessed with movies itself because yes. it's about movies. Yep. So – even as it's being such a movies movie movie, you still feel as though if this is not a is if this is not the real world, it is a world that we're looking in on. You know what I'm saying? I agree. I agree and, with that completely. Yeah. You know, that's a whole this is a whole other rabbit hole we go down of just movies that you should see in theaters. And I think Oh, dude, yeah. Well, we'll do I mean? that on like, the Patreon. We'll do that on the Patreon. But yes, <laughs> as as far as like movies, I think you've seen a good cross section of the movies that we consider to be cinema. And I think you can kind of make your own um associations as to do you agree with us that a a bunch of fucking extras and sets you can burn down and actors who are willing to put themselves in danger and uh, not abusing green screen, having, you know, practical explosions, practical, um, practical effects almost at every turn that is absolutely possible. And I'd say up to and including fucking real squibs. I am mm-hmm. really fucking tired of these digital squibs, man. This shit doesn't look like nothing. It looks like Max Payne when motherfuckers get shot in serious movies, including John Wick. And yep. I know that they shoot these shits a whole bunch. Well, fuck, man. Get you a Sam Peckinpah schedule where he was doing the last part of a uh, fucking, what's that one? The, uh, Wild, the Bunch. Wild Bunch. Yeah. yeah. Get you a Sam Peckinpah schedule and get that shit done however you can. But up the cleaning bill, motherfucker, because I, I can't <laughs> take this digital blood no more, man. This shit sucks. That digital blood looks like some asylum shit. For real. I agree with you. I, it, it, the worst is when like it just sort of conveniently disappears off screen and it's never on walls. It's never on floors. It's just exactly. Like, Whoa, there's a big blast of blood. And now everybody it, it's not anybody's clothes. Like what happened? Right. To it? You could have a white party and John Wick shooting people in it and there'd be no evidence that anybody got <laughs> shot except for the people laying down. Exactly. You know what I mean? It'd just be everybody laying on the floor. <laughs> everybody totally Look. clean laying down. <laughs> you know, that shit sucks, man. Uh, I'm, with you know, you. I'm with you on all that. I, I All I'll say is having had this whole conversation, I am even more curious to see if Oppenheimer is going to live up to all these sorts of criteria that we've discovered and all these great movies that we've discussed, because, you know, this movie has marketed itself so heavily on the idea of like, you have to see it in the most high fidelity format on the biggest screen possible. And like, that was the reason I wanted to talk about this. Like for as much as they're selling us on that, will it live up to movies such as we've talked about here from Jurassic Park to Conan to Die Hard to, you know, even stuff like Memento. Will Oppenheimer do it? That's an open question for me. All I know is I'm waiting to see it on a true IMAX 70 millimeter screen. So I will report back once I've done so. Oh, absolutely. And uh, if I had one dismount comment in regards to what I think is a great cinematic masterpiece that I think people should seek out to see in a movie theater, and I can't believe I didn't think of it before this, but uh, better late than never. I saw a couple times 
Malcolm X, Spike Lee's Malcolm X oh. in the movie theater. And I got to tell you, man, it's one thing to watch that thing on a long, languorous uh, Sunday afternoon and you start it and you stop it to get popcorn and to play with your kid or whatever. And you come back. Oh, he's a Muslim now. Yeah, I must have missed something. <laughs> it's, it's it's something. It's you know what I'm saying? It's it's OK. It's not OK to watch it like that. I got to say, sit sure. your ass down. And look at that shit for three fucking hours, just like, and I'm not talking to you, but just like Lawrence yep. of Arabia, just like uh, Citizen Kane, just like goddamn, all these, uh, all, all these movies that deserve your attention. Fucking, it's Spike Lee's Malcolm X is beautiful because it has its own operatic tone, and it has its sort of like own voice, and mm-hmm. it is telling you historical shit, but it's giving you this, not even a wink. It's like, look, man, I tried to make this as dope as I could make it, but tell you the facts, quote unquote, of what Michael Max went through. And just the stylization therein, where it's not trying to be like this boring ass forties. Like they shoot the forties, like with the most modern technology possible in the most modern ways possible. You know what I'm saying? That, that movie is great about that type of shit. And then when you see all the story machinations that goes through as far as uh, a piece of acting and a cipher, you could put yourself onto. Yep. Come on, man. Come That's on, man. Gonna, you can't do better than that. That's what I was going to say, just on top of everything you were talking about. I mean, that 100% fits the mold of being like a, a breakout vehicle for just one of the all-time great everyman actors. Because Denzel, I mean, he had a string of huge hits at that time. But I would make the argument. I mean, I think Malcolm X is, is maybe the movie that makes him the caliber movie star that we've come to know him as. Dude, he's just amazing in it, and he he, he definitely got jobbed out of the uh, uh, out of the Oscar that year because I, mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where he morphs from you know scared kid who doesn't know what to do to street hustler guy to prisoner whose spirit is broken to uh, prisoner who is in the nation of Islam to person out of prison in the nation of Islam but is still a follower doesn't really know what's going on to rising up to pariah in there because he rose up too far to his own guy to his own guy again that changed and then boom he's dead i mean that's a lot of fucking acting to be doing in that gener- and, and to keep track because yes. I mean, if they didn't shoot that shit in sequence this motherfucker gotta be a genius he's bobby fisher of acting well listen and and i mean all credit to spike lee too because as i've said before like that is one of the hallmarks of an all-time great director is that they can keep the actor in the appropriate mm-hmm. moment for the scene that they're shooting. Yes. Um, and so on top of Spike Lee always being a visual virtuoso, never shooting a made for TV movie and yet always changing up his style, which is something that we should maybe get into in more depth in, in a future episode and just talking about how like Spike Lee has an extremely cinematic style, but like it changes whole cloth from movie to movie, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I Um, I think he does that like on purpose to try to suit the material. I do believe that if he kept a few trademarks, people would consider, I consider him up there with people like Scorsese and blah, blah, blah. But I think the average person would too, if he just held on to some of those benchmarks, I'm just like, this is how I do it. Besides like the floating shot and these visual signatures, he's got more of those that anyway, but like Malcolm X is a true shining achievement. And again, it, it hits another milestone for me, which is the whole cast of thousands thing i know there wasn't necessarily ever a cast of thousands anywhere in the thing but it felt like it it did not seem small 
for whatever budget they made it. Yes, the scope. Yes, exactly. That is the some cinema scope. That's some <laughs> cinema scope as shit that that he was doing in yeah. there. And you know, I've I've often talked about how like when people spend a lot of money or a lot of production value or a lot of artistry on stories that would supposedly ostensibly appeal to black people, I tend to get a little choked up. You know what I'm saying? And I looked at the story of how Malcolm X got made, and it wasn't even the like. I mean, Black Panther had $200 million. Black Panther. How would I say it like that? Black Panther had $200 million of fucking Disney money behind it. This shit, I mean, uh, notoriously, people like uh, Cosby and other rich people at the time, Oprah. Uh, maybe should have said Oprah first. Um, threw, threw money down to, yeah. you know, to help because they were, you know, lowballing them on the budget on it. And that those monies from black celebrities as like the first GoFundMe, I guess enabled mm. him to get that scope and he knew that he needed it because once you shoot somebody like Malcolm X on a TV budget, that's what happened to fucking Martin Luther King, bro. Martin yep. Luther King never had that ill ass movie yep. because they shot a billion of them on TV budgets with like Paul Winfield and shit. It's true. And no, then, that's 100% true. You know, you never got the great uh, you know, Martin Luther King biopic and you would think that that's what these motherfuckers would want to see. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they wouldn't want to see the one that I want to see where he's like, well, oh yeah, they, 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 oh, I did a bunch of stuff about black people and stuff and they didn't shoot me. Okay. Um, well, I hate Vietnam too. And these trash workers need to get, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? As soon as he started talking about Vietnam and getting motherfuckers paid on unions, he had to go. <laughs> you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Peace, love, black people, black people in the future, holding hands, kissing people, uhura, fine, whatever. Unionize. We got to shoot this motherfucker right now. <laughs> you know? So I, I would love to show that. I would love a movie that explored that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But anyway, Malcolm X just stands to me as like a towering achievement in the biopic. I just, it's the first biopic that I really think of. When I think of biopics, I think it stands that tall amongst them. And obviously, you know, I have a particular affinity for the uh, for the subject matter, but I just sure. think it really it really shows the epic nature of film and how film can like tie all stories together. Because I know there's a few people who watch that, maybe even some sort of racist folks would be like, "All right, I still hate these motherfuckers, but I understand why they might not have so many hot feelings for me." I understand exactly where they're coming from. I understand how maybe black people could be so-called radicalized by the nation of Islam. I don't personally think it's that much of radicalization, but Hey, certain people could see it as radicalization. And I can see like, man, sometimes you just want to sell some bean pies and get out the hood. You know what I'm saying? Watching somebody show that world with the same fidelity and the same scope as we get shown the Italian experience and you know, the Irish boxers or whatever the fuck and the, the people who are biting the Native American style and Michael Mann's, uh, uh, you know, Last of the Mohicans. Last of the Mohicans, with, yeah. <laughs> with that same cinematic fidelity, we see the life of Malcolm X. That I just think that that's why it's stuck in my, my craw so hard. Like for all these years, it's what I think of as a biopic because I – I don't know. I'd seen so many movies, but they were like TV movies before that movie. There's a very strong argument that that's the greatest biopic ever made. Um, yeah, it's up there, dude. Yeah, so yeah I just I, wanted I, to mention it. No, that's it, it's an absolutely great addition to the list. And, you know, preemptive apologies if there were any ones that we didn't get to. But I mean, I think this is a pretty good and exhaustive list. And I think even more than that, like, I'm... I, 
I'm really satisfied with these sort of loose criteria that we've been identifying as we've gone through this conversation, because mm-hmm. I do think it paints a, a really complete picture of like what we mean when we talk about a cinematic experience, which is also funny because like that question of what is cinema has been so hot lately on the internet. Maybe if you talk to anybody who has that question in their life, point them at this episode of our podcast. Fuck yeah, please do. And you know what some of our people have been doing? They've been leaving us five-star reviews. Ooh, they've been listening to all of Ed's passion pleas to do so. Dude, and, I tell uh, them to, I tell them to join the Patreon. I tell them to leave reviews. I tell them to leave us letters at uh at email the greatest pod at gmail.com. I do all these things, and when they do some of them, I'm really I'm really overjoyed. So did you see that new review that we got? Oh, much love to Joshua Saden uh, as he signed his review. No idea if that's your real name, and nor do I care. But Joshua Saden leaving us a five-star review. With a a great little paragraph here, if I may be so bold as to read it for you. Nice. Uh, and what's the what's the what's the review titled? It is titled "Listen In" if you enjoy intelligent and funny discussions and are a nerd. And I can't <laughs> agree more. <laughs> That's us. <laughs> All right. So this review is long overdue. I've been following since the Nerd Goat podcast. And Ed's days on Screen Junkies. Oh, those those salad days, the Halcyon days. Oh, lovely. This show is the whole package. I love how you all discuss all things nerd and get into the weeds while still keeping things in perspective and having a sense of humor about it. It's also been a great place for me to learn about things like the Overton window. The discussions also connect to real-world politics and current events without getting too heavy either. If you haven't listened before, do yourself a favor and tune in. It will be worth your time. I even got a Spotify account going specifically just so I could leave this review. Then I discovered that you can apparently only rate podcasts on Spotify. So then I went to the Apple route, not a native (laughs) Apple user. (laughs) Finally, here we are. (laughs) Last things last. Oh, see, he knows one of our signature catchphrases. Last things last. Ed, Ron, Bill, keep up the great work. Thank you. <sighs> Thank you so much. That That is exactly what we like to hear because obviously there are shows that are just like for, for an hour and a half and people like those a lot. We're not that. And then there are mm-hmm. shows where they're just like, well, you see the Eisenstein theory of, you know, there's a lot of that that's out there and we're not that either. So we're mm-hmm. in this nice pocket of, we know what we're talking about, but we're not going to relay it to you in the driest, most boring uh, form. 1000%. I, I pride our podcast on being able to do things like relate to current events and even bring in politics without getting heavy, without getting preachy, without getting, yeah, like uh, the least popular kid in your history class in college. Like, <laughs> I. I like the fact that we don't have to be that guy in order to have really edifying conversations. So please do like Josh and send us a funky fresh review. And yes, 
Thank you, Josh, for following my instructions. Get on these damn apps, even if you don't use them, and leave the review and then vamp. It's the way to show the corporations who's boss. They think they got you when you sign up for these goofy accounts. They think they got you, but you're like, no, I just came here to support my boys for your stupid evil algorithm. And now I bid you adieu when you jump out the fucking window like Mask of the Phantasm. Come on, man. I love that shit. Love that shit completely. And if you you don't want to go through the trouble of creating a spoof account, just to leave us a review, go ahead and take your actual self over to patreon.com slash the greatest pod, sign up there, couple bucks a month will get you a smattering of extra podcasts, as well as art by Ed, some art by Ron, and even some art by me, um, all of varying levels of quality, but all <laughs> of which we are sure you will want to hang up on your wall or your fridge or wherever it is you hang original art. Well, it's been fun discussing the art of cinema with you mm-hmm. bill ed you are always my favorite cineast conversationalist so i am i'm here every time for these oh thanks man and to those out there this has been another 70 millimeter widescreen imax original presentation of the greatest <laughs>